Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm Sabrina. This is Trailer Talk. Welcome to the ever-expanding kitchen table. I am welcoming back from a previous episode Laura Flanders from The Laura Flanders Show and Ramsey Adams from Catskill Mountain Keeper. So, Laura, please share with us who you are, how you describe yourself. Sure. I'm Laura Flanders. I'm a white woman in her now 60s, part of the third act generation that Bill McKibben is rousing to activism with his new organization. I host The Laura Flanders Show on TV and radio, also available as a podcast. We're holding a great event in Calicoon, Sunday, October 16th, and you can get all the information at lauraflanders.org. Ramsey. I'm Ramsey Adams. I'm the founder and executive director of Catskill Mountain Keeper and uh, one of the co-hosts for the event with Laura and Bill uh, McKibben on uh, the 16th, and I'm really excited. It's going to be an amazing night. Can't wait. Thank you both so much. For both of you, for Ramsey and Laura, do you have lessons like that, that you can share examples with our listeners of something that shifted for you in your own understanding of what's possible with the work you each do? Wow, so many. Do you want to go first, Ramsey? Oh, sure. Well, let's stick with the fracking fight because there were a lot of important lessons. I am waiting for the, the definitive book that someone's going to write about it because there's so many uh, so many different facets of that whole fight were going on. And it was the collective, you know, it really was. There were so many like key people uh, working to stop fracking in New York State and they were all leaders, but collectively they uh, is what made it happen. So um, I think one of the most important lessons I learned was when we heard about fracking for the first time, a farmer came into our office in Youngsville and talked to Wes and I, uh, one of the founders of Mountain Keeper, and said, there's a landman who wants to lease my land for hydraulic fracturing here in the Catskills over uh, near the Delaware. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you, there's no gas here. What, what is this? You know, anyway, you know, it turns out, of course, there's a massive Marcellus shale that sits under the whole region. And it was, uh, you know, uh, finally the technology was allowing them to access this. And then clean natural gas with the blue little, beautiful little uh, design, you know, the clean, you've seen it a million times, you know, the whole message out there was that this is a better alternative and a bridge fuel to coal and and, petroleum. Well, this didn't, you know, once we dug into it a little, it didn't make sense when we learned what hydrofracking was and what the intensity it would take to get that that fuel out of the ground, to transport it, to pipe it, to treat it, to ship it. To, when you looked at it, it wasn't a better option. It was actually a worse option, and it would keep us addicted to fossil fuels, by, and we'd be building out the infrastructure for this. It was a death knell. And when we figured that out, you know, and said to the big green groups that we went to immediately to talk to them about getting support to figure out what was going on, they all said, like, literally, uh, it's a done deal. Like, it's happening. It's better than, than the alternative. It's a bridge fuel. So, you know, let's work together to mitigate the impacts of this. And that message didn't resonate with the activists and the people who lived around here. They were like, no, you know, that's not good enough. And so, you know, Mountain Keeper and others 
said, we don't want to be at a table if that's the foregone conclusion, that the outcome's already determined and we're at the table to mitigate whatever disaster you guys are about to create. So no, we're not going to accept that. And that's when the movement started. And that's when um, New Yorkers Against Fracking organized. And that's when now Emergent, Mark Ruffalo, and Yoko Ono, and, and a million other people got together and, and just started saying no and we stopped it like it was incredible and everybody backtracked the big greens i'm not going to name them but they all came around to understanding first of all how terrible it is and 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 that it's not a bridge fuel because it's as bad as as the other ones basically as bad as coal but also that that the whole and laura alluded to this just a few minutes ago the whole industry was trying to control the narrative, you know, and spending millions and millions and millions of dollars and hiring lobbyists and everybody in, you know, in Albany and we're trying to overrun the state with this, you know, just look over here, look how pretty this puppy is. This puppy's great. You're all, all going to get rich, but it's a fridge fuel. It's perfect. And the whole thing was a Ponzi scheme. And the New York Times and you and others started to dig into this stuff and just basically broke it open for what it really was. So the lesson was you can't stop you can win. We didn't think we were going to win <laughs> you know, when we were doing it. We wanted to win, but, but we did win. And that's yeah. to me like the biggest lesson. That's organizing. That's sharing information. That's using the other alternative media channels. We collectively accomplished something that's, I think, a, a really important model for how we're going to have to fight moving forward. You know, again, I'd love to see the, 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 the full story on the fracking fight one day. Um, because there's so many pieces to it. Well, maybe you'll help us tell it on the show some point. I can tell my my you know my piece <laughs> of it. You know, again, it's, a, lot it, of it's a huge story. And I mean, I think what you said about you know we can win is so important, and that we need to celebrate sometimes the wins. And I think when Bill McKibben comes out here on Sunday, October 16th, for our shared event, he'll be talking about what may have been a temporary win in Washington, forcing Senator Manchin to drop that dirty energy fast-tracking proposal, but nonetheless was a win that we need to talk about how it came together and what difference it made and what lies ahead. He's a big one for giving you the the glass half full as well as the glass half empty, and I I think that's important. And we're also going to be hearing from Taina Asili, who will bring sort of spirit and song and culture into the room. And if you were to ask, you know, if I've been thinking about what have I learned, You know, I I come to the work that I do as a kind of British leftist socialist feminist, right? Like a little bit on the not too spiritual side. But I've learned how important spirit is to the work that we do. I've learned it through the years, through the songs that people sing. I've learned it in the last few years, spending a lot of time with Native American organizers and indigenous activists. They have taught me, you know, in this moment of the present, connects the past and the future. The past and the future, my friend Judith LeBlanc has said on our show, live in this moment. So as we do the work that we do on this land that is, you know, Muncie Lenape territory, you know, we are the people who can make a difference today for tomorrow, honoring the people who've come before us who have fought this similar fight and who have, you know, cherished this land uh, to this point. And I think that that power of spirit is something that I've learned, Sabrina, if you were to ask me, I'd have to humbly say that I underestimated the power of spirituality, of spirit, of culture, um, in the work that, uh, we all need to do, uh, because it is through that sense of 
belonging connectedness that that we live and feel empowered and and feel able and part of something or lacking it feel you know alienated rejected um and then we grasp at straws like you know that shiny bit of profit or that uh, short-term gain or that selfish little bit of turf that's just yours uh, we can't do this selfishly we can make this we can only make the change we're talking about generously uh, and collectively um, is where it's at laura thank you so much so you're talking about spirit culture ramsey uh, uh, lessons learned from being told no something is impossible and also the collective the the doing it with each other that makes things possible so I am interested to find out, well, some more specifics about some of the episodes, Laura, for the Laura Flanders show that that you can share with us, something in there, perhaps. I mean, I'm thinking when you the two of us started working together when I was fortunate when you asked me to work with you was at the height of the COVID pandemic and it was towards the end of March, April of 2020, and that's when we began to collaborate and COVID in the country was produced. And that led to you being based in Sullivan County. And Ramsey, I'm thinking of the years that we have been in dialogue around these issues and also had the opportunity to collaborate around the place where we live and the issues around the environment. So what am I trying to say? I'm not sure, but but I guess I want to share with our listeners more about some of the 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 specifics of the work. I'm very fortunate. My grandfather on my father's side uh, came over on a boat from Ireland when he was 17 and, and worked on the docks uh, and got married and then really decided he wanted to be a free, sort of a free agent. And he came up to Calicoon Center and uh, bought a little farm and him and my grandmother raised a family there on, on a little farm on Bethlehem Road. And it was a poor, 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 poor farm. My dad Grew up, went to school in Roscoe, played football, and went on uh, out into the world. He uh, was uh, able to get a law degree and, and, and then got involved early on in the environmental movement. And he founded the Natural Resources Defense Council and was its uh, executive director for 40 years and then played different leadership roles um, and continues to be involved in NRDC. And he also started the Open Space Institute, which is a, a land uh, conservancy that's done an enormous amount of work. So I got to, so you're talking about half glass, half full, Bill McKibben a minute ago. You know, I got to see the world through the lens of, of the environment. That was the way it was for me. And I was, you know, uh, had a, a front row seat to uh, all of the various environmental fights that happened from 69 until today. And uh, it's been really, you know, really formed the way I think I'm seeing 
the challenges that the movement has faced, the, the challenges of it, the, the patriarchy of it, the, the whiteness of it, uh, the entitlement of the movement, and the challenges of the environmental movement needs to you know, face head on in order to move forward and be effective in the future. And so it's been a really um, interesting opportunity for me to continue working in some respects in the field that my father and my mother to work um, his work was uh, uh, on a much more national and international uh, scale. And I've really focused on this place-based activism because I believe that's where the movement needs to be now. Um, and and the, the policy work is really important. What goes on in Washington is, is, you know, obviously that's where the rubber meets the road. But on the other hand, it's place-based activism that I think is where the climate fight needs to be. So that's that's a little bit of how I got to be here in the Catskills. It's 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 personal, and I the Catskills are truly one of the most beautiful and important places uh, in the world. And I'm glad to be able to fight for them. Thank you for sharing that, Ramsey. It's fascinating, as you say, your father, who founded the Natural Resources Defense Council, one of those big green orgs, national and international and complicated with issues that you're addressing in terms of where we need to be right now with environmental activism and environmental justice, but also that you've chosen to to work in the place where you live. As you said, place-based is really the key to making the, the needed changes in the climate movement. And I'm wondering, Laura, if you want to jump in now with your own connection to the media work that you do and why, because I'm so excited to have both of you here in this conversation, because it is also a reminder, you know, when we're talking about the collective, I mean, you two represent a kind of collectivity, right? With the work that you do, but from, from different, from different uh, mediums or disciplines, but with a, a very like-minded mission. Well, I can see what we have in common with both of us, like per perceived as great radicals, but really we're terribly conservative. Both of us have followed exactly in the <laughs> footsteps of our predecessors. <laughs> So I'm like the least radical person in my family because I come from a family of journalists, many of them independent, radical journalists, just like me. Um, many of them, my grandfather, Claude Coburn, was a um, commie from the 30s who was simultaneously working for the British Communist Party paper, The Daily Worker, and The London Times in Washington during the 30s. And he thought um, he did uh, a great coverage of, of everything from presidents to, um, uh, you know, gang leaders and um, mafioso, and he could see very little difference between the two. Um, in my family, it is a long tradition uh, of independent journalism, of, you know, poking an eye in, in power and refusing to accept no for an answer and, and holding power to, to account. And in the generation after Claude were his three sons, Patrick, Alexander, and Andrew Coburn, spelt Cockburn. You've probably come across the byline or you may have. Alexander uh, was the one I was closest to. And, and interestingly, while he, you know, spilled vitriol, brilliant, um, you know, incredibly um, just articulate, brilliant vitriol at just about everybody all the time, 
he lived in a little tiny community in Petrolia, California, the very northern tip of California, named Petrolia because it was the first place offshore drilling happened, um, bringing petrol ashore. Um, in Petrolia, he created a whole community around him that was so joyful and so positive and so loving. Um, and I think, wow, I've now done that too. <laughs> uh, but it interested me because it was in some ways a contrast to his public persona. Not really for people that knew him. His, just like Che, his, his uh, uh, radicalism was fueled by a lot of love. Uh, but I, anyway, was very moved to watch uh, every time I got a chance how he had built community where he lived. So I don't underestimate the importance of place in the work that we do, even though the reporting that we do tries to put local stories within a national context. We, we, we could be doing stories every single minute, but we try to pick stories that have a national relevance, um, that model something that is either replicable or that could be scaled for impact or that has impact because it catalyzed something um, significant. Um, and to be focusing on the local area here in the Catskills during COVID, Sabrina, was, um, I won't say a wake-up call because I knew there were stories here, but it was just such a joy to do. You know, there we were in the middle of the, of the pandemic. You as my friend were in my pod. I'm sitting here, journalist, after about six weeks, I'm like, okay, I've done this. Now what's happening around here? <laughs> Who do I call to partner with me in doing an investigation into how COVID is really affecting people where, you know, within our, our driving area, um, you. And it was a joy to, to get to know this community better, where, as I said, I've had a cabin for 30 years, but I didn't know there was a foie gras factory, a stone's throw from here. I didn't know what the condition of life was for the um, farm workers and you know, the, the chicken factory workers in South Fallsburg or the dairy farm workers in the Liberty area. I didn't know a lot of what was happening right under my nose. And um, it was humbling to find out. It was exciting to find out. It was a joyful collaboration with you. And I hope that we can do many more stories that are based right here, all of which have national implications. That story that we was headlined, as you said, COVID in the country, was one of the very few reports at that point that even looked at the impact of COVID in non-urban areas. Uh, and in doing what we did, we sparked a whole conversation about what was happening in, in rural America during COVID. Uh, and I like to say, you know, a friend of mine once told me, you know, the role of independent media is to bring issues to the boil and the mainstream inhales the steam. You know, that's what we do. That's how this works. We, we raise an alarm. Someone hears it. Eventually it becomes part of the national discussion. And uh, there are plenty of alarms and stories to be told right here. And I'm excited to be doing them. I want to go back to this idea of pollination because this was discussed in thinking about this in-person event that is being hosted by Mountain Keeper and a fundraiser for the Laura Flanders show. But, you know, it's a, it's a community event and this idea of the of pollination. So both the idea of it and literally what that means. And Ramsey, you mentioned the, the Birds and Bees Protection Act. And as we're getting into the colder months now in the Catskills falls here, I wanted us to think about this idea of pollination and what literally and also symbolically, and Ramsey, I'd love to begin with you, but, but where that takes you, that idea of pollination. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. And and I think most of us listening, us here right now, understand the importance of pollinators, uh, the, the critical to our survival. You know, we do not survive without pollinators. And, and there's a huge disconnect in the, the zeitgeist out there and the understanding of people uh, and the general public about how fragile uh, the, the, the pollinator uh, ecosphere is and how close we are to wiping it out. It's frightening. I mean, it is truly frightening. And this is global, national, and regional, and local. And so one of the things uh, about our friends, the bees and, the, and, and, and all of the pollinators is that, you know, th- their existence now is, is dependent on the human race making the right decisions. It is frightening how close we are to collapse. Um, it's scary to go into the science, but what we do know is that, that the pesticide and herbicide business, the chemical uh, and agricultural seed companies are, are the, the root of, of the, the biggest problem that we've got. And one, of, and one of the chemicals is the neonicotinoids, which are a class of chemicals that, that sounds like cigarettes because it, it is. And someone described it to me sort of like this, that a bee who ends up, you know, ingesting neonicotinoid, which is, is to keep insects and to make growing plants easier. And it's the, the neonicotinoids often um, sprayed on the seed itself and it grows up with the plant. A bee that's been uh, intoxicated by a neonicotinoid basically gets stoned and lost and can't ever make it back home and dies. You know, it's sort of like getting a really bad nicotine buzz, you know, but it's the, and, and so there's a lot of other things that this, this chemical and the other chemicals are doing. So like the, the spread of, of, of life, which is what pollinators really are, the beauty of life, the flowers, the food, you know, that's really the root of, of, of what, that vision of, of the beauty of pollinators and what we are knowingly doing to them, to our own detriment is insanity defined. You know, we are crazy. You know, it, this is crazy town. Um, and that getting the message out to have people understand that the choice is, there's no choice. There's no choice at all. We have to do this. And, and what you're giving up is so non-important. You know, we don't need these chemicals. We don't need to do this to feed ourselves, to have good health. It's just crazy. So, you know, it's, 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 I think it's an opportunity for all of us and, and, and the pollinators and, and, and celebrating pollinators, getting this law passed, getting um, the nation to follow New York again, um, once we do get this law passed and to get this, uh, this piece of this fight behind us so we can move on to the other ways to protect the pollinators. Um, is a really it's right in front of us now. So that's why the urgency, you hear it in my voice. The urgency is now. Um, yeah. We'll be sharing more information. I hope you'll be sharing more information about what people can do to help pass the Birds and Bees Protection Act at our event, October 16th, which I Absolutely. mentioned not only for self-serving purposes, reasons, but also to point out that our co-sponsor in that event is Pollinator Spirits, um, which is the new label, the latest label from the good folks at Catskill Provisions. 
Uh, and I don't want to make light of how important some of their spirits have been to me, especially in the last few years. Um, <laughs> but the idea of pollination is just so beautiful. And one of the things that so moves me about what pollinator spirits and Catskill provisions are doing is that a portion of all of their profits goes back to support pro-pollination projects. I think 3%, Claire Marin would say. So it's, again, we are, I think on the 16th, going to be celebrating pollinators of all different kinds. I like to think that uh, Sabrina and I are pollinators of good ideas um, and good news and news news. Um, and we'll be with one of the great pollinators, um, Bill McKibben, one of the founders of 350.org, now with his new project, A Third Act, his book will be available and he'll be signing copies. It's got a great title, The Flag, The Cross and the Station Wagon. A graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. And as you're talking about pollination, I'm reminded of Rachel Carson, you know, who was calling, you know, blowing the whistle on what was happening to pollinators in the 1960s. So we're talking, you know, over a, a, a cent half a century ago, Here's a woman who was pollinating this important message and being dismissed by the media. I mean, we don't remember that she was red baited uh, in the 60s. She was called in front of the House Un-American Affairs Committee. She was vilified as a radical and treated as such a real outsider by the media, by the money media of the day. Um, and today, again, we think of her as this kind of cherished character. Um, she was not accepted at that time. Her message was not accepted, was um, very brutally fought back uh, and resisted by the, the media in the pay of the, the dirty energy companies. Um, and there are people blowing the whistle today who our media are ignoring, which is why we need independent media like all of us represent. Um, so come out and hear the, the Rachel Carsons of today, namely Ramsey and his colleagues, uh, hear the great music from Taina Asili, Bill McKibben, and be part of this change-making that, that you're helping to um, publicize, Sabrina, and that you're so much a part of. It's important that we all pollinate uh, together and, and imbibe a few spirits along the way. Definitely. Thank you so much, Laura and Ramsey, for sharing that. Thank you both so much. I'm Sabrina. This is Trailer Talk. And my guests have been Laura Flanders from The Laura Flanders Show. To find out more about that, please visit lauraflanders.org. And Ramsey Adams, the founder and the executive director of Catskill Mountain Keeper. More information is available at catskillmountainkeeper.org. We have been speaking about the landscape of the Catskills region. We have been speaking about pollination, about the challenges of both the climate landscape and also the media landscape, but also what it takes to make changes so things improve for everyone and everything. Please join them on October 16th at Catskill Provisions for an in-person fundraising celebratory event. You can also find out more at lauraflanders.org and also at Eventbrite. It's October 16th, 4 to 7 p.m. at Catskill Provisions in Calicoon, New York. Thank you all for listening. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. 
The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels.